Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. On the morning of December 26, 1996, a 39-year-old stay-at-home mom got out of bed around 5.30. As she made her way to the kitchen to grab a cup of coffee, she spotted something unusual near the back staircase of the family's Tudor-style mansion she discovered a a two-and-a-half-page handwritten letter. It was a ransom note. Her six-year-old daughter had been kidnapped. In disbelief, she read the shocking letter. Listen carefully, it stated. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. The kidnappers went on to demand $118,000 and instructed the family to wait for a call between 8 and 10 that morning. They warned that any contact with police would lead to their daughter's murder. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, we look back at the mysterious case of JonBenet Ramsey, one of the longest and most baffling true crime whodunits of the decade. After reading the terrifying ransom note, Patsy and John Ramsey ignored the warning not to contact authorities. And at 5.52 a.m., they called Boulder Police to report the kidnapping of their young daughter. What's going on there, ma'am? We have a kidnapping. Can you explain to me what's going on, okay? There, we have a... Officers who arrived at the upscale Boulder, Colorado neighborhood tried to make sense of what was going on. The ransom note seemed strange to them. First of all, it asked for $118,000, a very precise amount of money. Plus, it had been written on pages from a legal pad found inside the Ramsey home which meant the kidnappers spent time in the house writing out a nearly three-page note by hand instead of rushing to leave the scene of a crime to avoid detection. Police waited to hear from the kidnappers, and then around 1 p.m. with no call coming in, investigators asked John Bonet's father to search the 6,800-square-foot house to look for anything that seemed unusual or out of place. 53-year-old John Ramsey went immediately to the basement with a friend. And in minutes, he made a grim discovery. John Bonet's lifeless body lying on the cement floor of a storage room. She was dressed in a white knit shirt and long underwear. There was a cord around one wrist, and duct tape had been placed over her mouth. And a quick warning, 
The following details have been shared widely in the media, but it doesn't make them any less graphic. JonBenet's head was fractured, and she'd been strangled with a nylon cord that was tightened with a small paintbrush. Later, it would also be determined that she had been sexually assaulted. After making the grim discovery, John Ramsey pulled the tape from his daughter's mouth and carried her limp body upstairs and laid her on the hardwood floor in the living room. The search was over, but the mystery surrounding the case had just begun. Before we go any further, let's step back and take a look at the Ramsey family prior to the tragedy that tore their lives apart. The Ramsey family was from Atlanta, Georgia. Patsy had been, her mother had been in pageants herself and and had won the title of Miss West Virginia in the Miss America contest. That's author Joyce Singular. She and husband Stephen Singular wrote a book about the John Bonet Ramsey case called Presumed Guilty. You'll hear both of them in clips throughout this episode. Joyce says the family moved to Boulder in 1991, hoping to make a new start after some difficult times. She had a, a real battle with ovarian cancer, and it was in remission during this time when John Bonet was killed. John Ramsey had an older daughter that was from a previous marriage that was killed in a, in a car accident. So they moved to Boulder thinking that they his business was in Boulder. He, he relocated, and they thought that Boulder was a very nice place to raise a family. And it, from the outside, looking in, it does appear that way. It's very progressive. It's a college town situated at the base of the Rockies. John Ramsey was president and CEO of Axis Graphics, a billion-dollar company which he had recently sold to Lockheed Aeronautics. In addition to six-year-old Jean Bonnet, who was named after her father, John and Patsy were also raising their nine-year-old son, Burke, in Colorado. The Ramseys were active in their church and the community, and by all accounts, were a normal, affluent family. With one exception. Before her death, Jean Bonnet had taken part in approximately nine child beauty pageants, winning at least four of them, including Little Miss Colorado. That aspect of her life became the focus of attention for the media and public at large. Immediately following Jean Bonnet's murder, photos of the child in garish beauty pageant costumes were splashed across North American newspapers. Wearing full makeup with teased blonde hair, she looked like a miniature woman or a Barbie doll come to life. For many people, when this story broke, it was the first time they learned of the child beauty pageant circuit. And that's a that's sort of a cultural thing here in the States anyway. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the Southern States, it's a more accepted thing, okay? In the Northern States, like Colorado, yes, we did have child pageants, but it wasn't as big of a deal as it was down South. So, uh, you know- And the costumes were not as big of a deal in, in Colorado. Well, the, the ones that John Monet was in were over the top, for sure. Yeah. And the fact that they just kept Putting that footage on over and over and over, you saw it so much that it just made this impression in your mind after a while. You know, you couldn't get it out of your mind. Generally, those photos of Jean Bonnet in costume, along with videos that showed her sashaying on stage, didn't sit well with the general public. People wondered how parents could sexualize their child in such a manner. Media coverage intimated that to put your child in a beauty pageant was weird, unnatural, and sexually suspect. 
One newscaster was more blunt. He said the six-year-old resembled a hooker. In reality, though, child beauty pageants may have been unusual in Colorado, but they were popular in other parts of the U.S. Shortly after Jean Benet's death, the editor of Pageant World magazine was quoted as saying that the children's pageant business was a billion-dollar-a-year industry, with more than 100,000 contestants under the age of 14 taking part in 3,000 pageants around the United States. Today, that number is greatly diminished, but still hundreds of pageants take place each year in the U.S. Regardless, thanks in part to the beauty pageant photos of Jean Benet, almost immediately, public opinion turned against the family, with many people, especially in their hometown of Boulder, suspecting that they must have somehow been involved in Jean Benet's death. And there was something else, too. Police, the media, and the public viewed the family's general demeanor and their actions as suspicious. Like in so many cases, opinions were cast because John and Patsy Ramsey didn't appear to behave the way people thought parents should behave following a tragedy. On the day that Jean Benet's body was found, her parents cooperated with the police, giving hours of interviews. But in the days that followed, the Ramseys declined police requests for formal videotaped interviews. Then John and Patsy each hired their own high-profile criminal lawyers, and a media consultant was brought on board. Police were informed that the Ramseys had nothing more to say and would answer no further questions. Later, a publicist would be added to the Ramsey team, along with private investigators, a criminal profiler, and two handwriting analysts. It was a group similar to the O.J. Simpson Dream Team, and to some, it gave the impression that maybe the family had something to hide. On January 1st, 1997, six days after Jean Benet's body was found, the Ramseys appeared on CNN in Atlanta. This fueled the suspicions. Some wondered why would a grieving couple go on national TV while refusing to speak to the police? In the interview, John and Patsy were asked who they thought may be responsible. You believe it's someone outside your home. There is a killer on the loose. I don't know who it is. However, the mayor of Boulder, Leslie Durgan, countered Patsy's claim with a somewhat cryptic response. She said, there isn't a crazed killer on the loose. And police chief Tom Cody also addressed the claims, saying the killing of Jean Benet does not appear to be linked to any similar event. We do not believe we have a serial situation to deal with. 30 police officers, or one quarter of the city's police force, were assigned to the case. Jean Benet just so happened to be the only murder victim in Boulder in 1996. Almost from the beginning, there were two prevailing theories discussed in the media. One, that either the parents or their nine-year-old son, Berg, killed Jean Benet by accident, and then the family attempted to cover up the crime by staging a kidnapping. Or two, that a stranger had entered the home and committed the murder. The internet was still fairly new, but even then, more than 30 websites devoted to the mysterious case popped up and they all posited theories about who may have had access to the house. Just two days before the killing, about 50 adults and children came to the Ramsey home for a Christmas party, including a hired Santa Claus, who some said paid a little too much attention to Jean Benet. 
There was also the fact that in previous years, the Ramseys had done a ton of renovations on their house with dozens of contractors and other workers inside their home to complete the work. Speculation was rampant, filling headlines in newspapers and dominating TV news programming. For the next half hour, we're going to piece together what we know about the killing of a little girl named Jean Benet Ramsey, and perhaps more importantly, what we do not know. We'll talk to a former employee for the Ramseys who was close to the family at one time, is now convinced of their guilt. And we'll talk to one of Patsy's former teachers who still supports this family. We'll ask her who she believes killed Jean Benet right after this. Author Stephen Singular says the round-the-clock coverage during the O.J. Simpson trial in 1995 set the stage for a media feeding frenzy surrounding the Ramses. The O.J. case set in, in, in place this, like I said, this whole class of commentators. I mean, they were just waiting for the next case to come along, and boom, here it is. It's a national, virtually international case. So they're all ready to jump in and say, well, this is what happened. Dad's a pedophile, mom's a a secret killer, the kid is, you know, killed his sister. As the seasons changed from winter to spring, the flurry of media speculation continued. But Boulder police still had not named a single suspect or person of interest. Meanwhile, through their lawyers, the Ramseys provided police with the names of at least 10 possible suspects, including disgruntled former employees at John Ramsey's computer company. The closest hint about a possible suspect came on April 18th, when Boulder's district attorney, Alex Hunter, responded to a reporter's question about John and Patsy Ramsey by saying, obviously the focus is on these people. The fact that police would look at the parents as possible suspects isn't unheard of. Statistically, when a child is killed at home, it's likely that a parental figure was involved. Indeed, police detectives repeatedly circled back to the Ramseys, asking friends and former neighbors in Georgia about any history of child abuse and searching the Ramseys' vacation home in Michigan. Police requested multiple handwriting samples from both parents and compared them to the two-and-a-half-page ransom note. John Ramsey was quickly cleared, but investigators would only say that the samples taken from Patsy did not exclude her as the person who may have written the ransom note. It seemed like police had hit a dead end. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Finally, on April 30th, 1997, four months after Jean Benet's murder, her parents agreed to meet with police for a formal interview. The tape-recorded police interrogations happened separately. Patsy's took six hours, while John's lasted two. The next day, the parents of the slain six-year-old held a news conference for a select group of local reporters at a hotel suite in Boulder, Colorado. It was the first time they had addressed the media since the CNN interview on January 1st. To those of you who may want to ask, let me address very directly, I did not kill my daughter, John Bonet. Uh, 
There have also been innuendos that she has, has been or was sexually molested. I can tell you those were the most hurtful uh, innuendos uh, to us as a family. Uh, they are totally false. Uh, John Bonet and I had a very close uh, relationship. Uh, I will miss her dearly for the rest of my life. Patsy echoed her husband's comments and said she was appalled by the rampant speculation about her family. Let me assure you that I did not kill Jean Benet. I did not have anything to do with it. I love that child with my whole of my heart and soul. When asked what they would want to say to Jean Benet's killer, both John and Patsy Ramsey stated, We will find you. John Ramsey also shed light on why he and his wife stopped speaking with police in the days following their daughter's death. He said they were absolutely appalled and nauseated when police initially refused to release Jean Benet's body unless they came in for an interrogation. The coroner overruled the attempt by police to hold the body. But in John Ramsey's words, that's when the worm turned. Ramsey believed that police had come to the conclusion from the very first day that someone in his family was responsible for Jean Benet's murder, and then focused exclusively on trying to collect the evidence to prove it, ignoring any other contradictory evidence along the way. There was also infighting and disagreements within the ranks of the Boulder police. Investigators and the chief of police clashed over the handling of the case. Plus, Boulder police were often at odds with District Attorney Alex Hunter, refusing at times to share information with him and openly criticizing Hunter's handling of the case. The list of complaints against the prosecutor's office was long. Failing to obtain the Ramsey's telephone and credit card records, failing to quickly call for a grand jury to compel reluctant witnesses to testify, failing to demand that all witnesses take polygraph tests, and leaving evidence untested. And Alex Hunter was also heavily criticized for allegedly sharing police reports and evidence from the case with the Ramsey lawyers. Many officers assigned to the case were trying to go by the book, but sources say time and again egos and small-town politics intruded. The media covered every twist and turn of the complicated case as the public consumed details like it was a competitive sport. Not a week went by that at least one tabloid newspaper didn't feature the John Benet story on the front cover. Tabloids even offered rewards in the case. The Globe posted a $500,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the killer while the National Enquirer offered the Ramseys a million dollars to take a polygraph test administered by technicians hired by the newspaper. For their part, the Ramseys refused to speak with police who were eager to interview them again, and instead launched a full-court press publicity initiative to clear the air of suspicion. The public relations company hired by the Ramseys launched a PR blitz that included full-page ads in Colorado newspapers along with a 10-page article that featured sympathetic interviews with family members and friends. Almost a year and a half after her death in June 1998, John and Patsy Ramsey finally agreed to a second formal interview with Boulder Police. This time, they also allowed investigators to interview their son, Burke, who was now 11 years old. 
Burke had never formally spoken with police about the night his sister died. And officers were eager to learn if he had anything new to add to their investigation. All along, police had been pushing the DA to send the case to the grand jury, which would have the power to compel people to testify under oath about what happened the night John Bonet died. Alex Hunter initially resisted, but finally, in September 1998, the grand jurors in Boulder, Colorado, began an investigation into the killing. Over the next 13 months, they heard testimony and forensic evidence that included analysis of handwriting, DNA, and hair and fibers found at the scene. They also toured the home where John Bonet was killed. The Ramsey family had moved out almost immediately and relocated to Michigan, where they had a summer home. During the months that the grand jury heard evidence, the drama continued outside the courtroom. Veteran homicide detective Lou Smith, who was in charge of the investigation, resigned, saying authorities were focusing too heavily on the parents. In his letter of resignation, he said the Ramses did not kill their daughter, and a very dangerous killer is still out there. Then, Boulder Police Detective Linda Arndt, the first detective at the Ramsey House on December 26, 1996, also quit. She had endured stinging criticism and ridicule because of what she did and didn't do once she arrived on the scene. Understaffed because of Christmas holidays, police investigators who first arrived at the house failed to secure the crime scene. And as friends and family gathered to support the Ramseys, they were allowed to roam freely through the house. Plus, when John Ramsey brought John Bonet's body upstairs and laid it on the floor, Detective Arndt quickly put a sheet over it, which could have destroyed crucial evidence. Arndt said she did it out of compassion for the dead girl's parents. She later sued her boss, Police Chief Tom Kobe, for not publicly coming to her defense and for not letting her defend herself. After quitting, Arndt appeared on Good Morning America to claim she knew who killed Jean Bonnet but wouldn't reveal the name. After 13 months of testimony, the grand jury wrapped up its investigation in October 1999. And in the end, District Attorney Alex Hunter announced there wasn't sufficient evidence to warrant filing of charges. Nearly three years after the murder of six-year-old Jean Benet Ramsey, it appeared the case was at a dead end yet again. But there was so much more to come. You may recall that Patsy Ramsey was in remission from cancer when her daughter died in 1996. She had been diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer three years earlier in 1993 and underwent an experimental chemotherapy program. Patsy remained cancer-free until about 2002 when the disease returned. She underwent another round of treatment in Georgia, but in 2006, her situation rapidly deteriorated. And on June 24, 2006, she died at her parents' home. Patsy Ramsey was 49 years old. Before she died, Patsy had hoped that DNA would finally clear her family and help find her daughter's killer. You see, three years earlier in 2003, Boulder detectives had reopened the case and submitted blood taken from Jean Benet's underwear to the FBI for DNA testing. A year later, Denver police said the DNA did not match any of the more than one and a half million DNA profiles in the FBI's database. But Patsy had not given up hope. 
a couple of weeks before she died, she said to the family's longtime lawyer, Lynn Wood, they need to hurry up. Wood said she must have realized she was not going to survive this round of cancer. Just two months after Patsy Ramsey died, there was a shocking and bizarre twist in this case that no one saw coming. An overnight confession from John Mark Kerr, the man investigators say brutally attacked and killed six-year-old Jean Benet Ramsey. A 42-year-old American teacher living in Thailand confessed to Thai police that he killed Jean Benet Ramsey. John Mark Carr had been living on the lam after facing child pornography charges in the U.S. Carr had come to the attention of Boulder police after he contacted a University of Colorado professor named Michael Tracy about a documentary the professor was making on the case. When Carr revealed a sexual fascination with Jean Benet, Professor Tracy contacted police who had him arrested in Bangkok. He was immediately flown to Boulder for questioning, but it soon became pretty clear, even to the untrained observer, that this guy was a fake. His story just didn't add up. A senior Thai investigator told the Associated Press Carr said he had sex with the girl after he drugged her, but the coroner found no evidence of drugs in the little girl's body. Carr's father has raised even more questions after he told reporters his son was obsessed with the case and wrote a college paper about it. Police eventually cleared Carr. He wasn't a murderer, just a mentally unstable person looking for notoriety and fame. And just to be sure, John Mark Carr was eventually cleared by DNA evidence. Maybe that's something you've been wondering about. Wasn't there something left behind by the killer or killers that could help investigators solve this mysterious case? Yes, there was. Early in the investigation, police found male DNA in a drop of blood on Jean Benet's underwear and determined that it was not from anyone in her family. But, and this is important, and it's the reason why the parents remain suspects in the eyes of the public. Investigators were unable to say whose blood it was or where it came from and whether that person was the killer. Then in 2007, a year after Patsy Ramsey died, and the same year John Mark Carr made his bogus confession, prosecutors gave Jean Benet's long underwear to a lab near Washington that was able to use new technology on the clothing. Bode Technology Ground used something called touch DNA, which looks for cells left behind where someone has touched something. And it found previously undiscovered genetic material on the sides of the long underwear, maybe where an attacker would have grabbed the clothing to pull it down. The same male DNA was found in three other places on her clothing. Prosecutors were convinced this DNA belonged to Jean Benet's killer. And they said it conclusively did not match John, Patsy, or Burke Ramsey. District Attorney Mary Lacey had taken over for Alex Hunter and made the announcement. She said they were deeply sorry for having put the family under a cloud of suspicion that hung heavy for more than a decade. She hoped the new results would eventually lead to a match in the National DNA Data Bank. This might be where your knowledge of the case ends. If you look on the internet and read a few stories, most retrospective pieces on the Jean Benet Ramsey murder stop here. But there was another major part of this story that has somehow been lost in the overall coverage, at least outside of Boulder, Colorado. Remember that grand jury that sat for 13 months looking into the case in 1998 and 1999? 
At the end of the hearing, District Attorney Alex Hunter decided no charges would be laid. Author Stephen Singular says the documents from that hearing were sealed in perpetuity. Well, why would a district attorney do that? What does that tell you? Why would you set a grand jury for 13 months and a couple million bucks of the public's money and then say the public has no right to know any of this information? In 2013, at the request of several local journalists, a Colorado court ordered that four pages be released. And you might be shocked to learn what they included. And those four pages said, John and Patsy Ramsey exposed their child to the persons or persons who led to her, that led to her death, and and they uh, participated in the aftermath of the cover-up of the crime. That's what the grand jury said. To be clear, in 1999, the grand jury voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey. They believed Jean Benet's parents should be charged with child abuse and for being an accessory to a cover-up of a crime that was committed by another person. The document provided no further details on who that person was. When the grand jury report was released to the public, the Ramsey family lawyer, Lynn Wood, said the indictments were nonsensical. And he reminded everyone that at the time, the grand jury didn't have the results of the DNA test completed almost 10 years later in 2008. For some, though, the new information was proof that something bigger was going on in Boulder, Colorado. And it added fuel to the fire of an ever-growing list of conspiracy theories surrounding this case. Author Stephen Singular says it's very rare for a district attorney not to endorse a grand jury's charge. The first question is, why was this not prosecuted? Why isn't why wasn't the case attempted to be solved? You had these two parents on somewhat lesser charges, right? I mean, child endangerment, essentially an accessory to a crime in the aftermath of it. Those aren't terribly difficult things to get convictions on, unlike first-degree murder, right? So why wouldn't you prosecute if that's the case? It would it would very likely have blown the whole case on if they had just come into court or, or you know put a lot of pressure on these people. That's the way law enforcement works. Why didn't it happen? Stephen and his wife, Joyce, along with many others, have long speculated that the killer may have been someone who first saw Jean Benet at a beauty pageant, perhaps a photographer. And that might explain the grand jury's accusation that the Ramseys exposed their child to the person who eventually killed her. After 20 years of silence, Jean Benet's brother, Burke Ramsey, finally spoke about his little sister's death. In 2016, he sat down for an exclusive interview on the Dr. Phil show. Burke told Dr. Phil that the last time he remembered seeing Jean Benet was in the family car as they returned from a friend's house on Christmas night. He said he didn't remember hearing any sounds the night of her death and clearly stated that he had never harmed his sister. Twitter and other social media lit up following the interview, criticizing Burke for smiling throughout his discussion with Dr. Phil. People thought it looked creepy. But Dr. Phil said it was unfair to judge someone on what he called a tick. Turns out the interview was a bit of a preemptive strike. Because shortly after it aired, CBS released a documentary called The Case of Jean-Benet Ramsey, which pointed a finger at Burke as a suspect. 
The two-part doc was made up of a panel of experts that attempted to reinvestigate the case. In the final scene, they stated the opinion that Burke Ramsey, who was nine at the time, struck his sister in the head with a heavy object, perhaps not intending to kill her. Earlier in the documentary, famed forensic investigator Werner Spitz said the autopsy results supported the theory that Jean Benet was beaten with a heavy flashlight that can be seen on the kitchen counter in crime scene photos. That flashlight, by the way, was tested by forensic experts back in 1996, and no traces of blood or DNA were found on it. Burke filed a lawsuit against CBS, which was settled in 2019 for an undisclosed amount. At the time of the settlement, Ramsey lawyer Lynn Wood said he sincerely hoped the CBS case would be his last lawsuit for the family. As of today, the case remains unsolved. The only hope for a breakthrough lies in DNA evidence. We've seen it happen before with other cold cases like the Golden State Killer in California and the 1984 murder of Christine Jessup that went unsolved for 36 years here in Canada. In the meantime, documentaries, books, and podcasts like this one continue to look at the story of a little girl whose murder became tabloid fodder and fascinated people around the world. Here's author Joy Singular. The general public, they want resolution. You know, nobody, nobody likes a vacuum. And so it's just human nature to try to fill in the blanks and say, oh, I think this is what happened, or this happened, or this happened. Nobody likes a, a cold case to have gone on now for 25 years. If she were alive today, Jean Benet would be 31 years old. But the world will always remember her as a six-year-old girl in beauty pageant makeup and teased blonde hair. Of course, she was much more than that. In her short life, Jean Benet Ramsey made the honor roll at her elementary school. She attended a local church. And friends and family described her as an inquisitive, giving child who loved Shirley Temple. Thanks for listening to this look back at the sad and mysterious story of Jean Benet Ramsey and her family. And thanks to my guests, Stephen and Joyce Singular. The husband and wife team have written multiple books together, including Presumed Guilty An Investigation into the Jean Benet Ramsey case, the media, and the culture of pornography. I'll put information about the book in the show notes. This episode was suggested to me by a few listeners, including Lindsay, who reached out to me by email. If you've got an idea, you can also send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. You can also reach me through Twitter and Facebook at 1990s History or on Instagram at That 90s Podcast. This episode was hosted and written by me, Kathy Gonzora. Dila Velasquez is our producer and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 